2: Of Boris Johnson, on this week's New Statesman podcast, Anoush and I discuss whether or not the former mayor of London can be stopped as his lead among MPs grows and grows. And you ask us, are those Tory MPs buying a false bill of goods? And in the other leadership election, we discuss who will emerge as Vince Cable's successor. As we speak, all ten of the candidates have now officially launched their bids. And from the perspective of most people listening to it, the first ballot will not yet have happened. But of course, for those of you who listen to this on your way home on Thursdays, and those of you who listen to it throughout the week, the first ballot will of course have been and gone. However, in many ways, actually, although I obviously love voting, actually the the leadership election from an interest perspective looks pretty fixed. So I'm joined by Anoush to discuss the state of the Tories, the state of their race, which does feel like it's essentially over unless, I was going to say unless Boris Johnson does something catastrophic to destroy his leadership, but I can't actually really work out what that would be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the Westminster wisdom or what people always like to say is the Tory leadership front runner never wins. And I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of this contest. And I really can't think of the scenario where that actually happens this time and Boris Johnson trips up and someone else gets the leadership. So, but of course, the, the problem with saying that is, of course, like there's always unknown unknowns (laughs) so so we can't predict what what will happen and also it is quite a long time six weeks so there could be other things that happen in in the meantime that that somehow trip him up
2: yeah I mean so I guess the reason why I sort of find it hard to see how it can happen is one it feels like this is already a candidate right who is somehow managing to run as being the one you need to vote for to win an election, while at the same time his campaign team are talking about the fact that they've like very carefully restricted media access. It's like he is the candidate who is so damn electable that if he would have to answer as many as seven <laughs> questions from a journalist in a day, his leadership campaign could be overturned. And yeah. yet Tory MPs are able to hold these obviously contradictory ideas.
0: You've hit the nail on the head. I did a piece this week which listeners can read if they would like about the Tory members and who they want to vote for in the final two if they are given a a choice of the final two. And that is exactly the contradiction. So they would say, oh, you know, I'm not a big fan and he's very flawed, but I think it's going to have to be Boris Johnson because he's got that broader appeal to the electorate. And then in in the next breath, they say the worst thing for our party would be a general election. You know, it's an existential crisis. We'd be wiped out. So how can you think those two things? How can you think I'm going to elect someone who I think the general public would vote for in an election, but the worst thing I can possibly imagine is a general election? Those two things don't make sense put together. So I do think that, in a way, both Tory MPs who have been endorsing him and the Tory members who are going to hold their noses and and vote for him, because there are quite a few, despite assumptions... They've they've got it wrong. And and the majority of... I mean, according to the most recent YouGov polling, the majority of the country feel negatively towards Boris Johnson. I know that can change when he's up against, you know, whoever he's up against, which will be Jeremy Corbyn.
2: I think the thing is, I'm kind of dubious that it can change, right? I mean, it could, right? So one of the interesting things is we don't fully know why it is that opinion about the two candidates in 2017 was so volatile. Mm. However one reason that feels to me fairly likely is most people did not really know very much about Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn. They knew that Theresa May was, they thought she was dull and in like, and I do think there's a very ingrained thing in our culture that people in Britain tend to assume that dullness is a sign of competence. They knew that Labour had elected a leader who was not like other Labour leaders and he was quite unpopular, but he was not Firmly so, right? People couldn't really articulate why. And all of the polls showed that people didn't really hold very strong opinions about either of them and didn't know very much about Mm. May or Corbyn. And I think that was a huge contributor to the ability of Labour's uh, very effective campaign to change minds. Yeah, like The the thing is quite interesting is watching Boris Johnson now feels a lot like watching a really aged footballer, right? There's the same kind of political skill, like the understanding of the like, oh, I get where public opinion is. Here, right, so that way, then he isn't unlike a lot of levers doing a very short-sighted. I know I'll embrace this deeply toxic American president and equate support for Trump, an opinion which you know barely a plurality of UKIP voters hold. <laughs> um, with support for Brexit, which got 17 million, right? He yeah. he, un- he understands all of that stuff, and he he can still kind of do that stuff quite well. Mm. But of course, he's deeply polarizing. A lot of people don't find the the routine funny anymore. And almost everyone in the country has a strong opinion about him. So I think like the capacity of those skills to turn around how people feel about him, I feel, feels quite limited. Of course, elections are comparative. And I also think that yeah. this idea that a lot of people in the Labour Party have, that, oh, come an election there'll be a similar transformation in Corbyn's ratings as there were last time. Could be, of course, that the people around Johnson and the people around Corbyn are right, and in a campaign they can do that. However, because unlike last time, you know, like most people did not have strong opinions about Corbyn and May at the start of that campaign. Mm. They very much have strong opinions about Corbyn and May now, and they very much have strong opinions about Johnson as well. However, I guess the question I have for you, as someone who's spent ages talking to these people out in Beaconsfield, is can you see a way that, the other candidate in the top two could persuade members not to vote for him?
0: I think that it's more open than... We as journalists generally tend to portray the, the the competition. I do think that it's not impossible that someone else could win in the final two to Boris Johnson. A lot of people I spoke to from the you know from the real heartland, very very Tory areas with larger than usual Conservative Party associations, which are the local parties. A lot of people said, "I'll see who it comes down to in the final two. I'll probably vote for the other one." But when you actually dig into that, they want someone who's a Brexiteer. So Dominic Raab came up a lot, and I know his campaign hasn't been particularly successful, as well as Michael Gove. So maybe when it comes down to the final two, those waverers will think, well, at least Boris Johnson represents Brexit more than the other one. So actually, you know, I think it's more open than we think, but I do think Boris Johnson still has the biggest chance in that final two decision. One of the key things that people were saying about Boris Johnson is that, you know, that. That They've been told that he's the front-runner, so they think that he's the most likely to win. And I was speaking to Professor Tim Bale, who's from the Queen Mary University of London, who's done lots of party members' research, and he was saying party members are actually no different to the general voter in the sense that they don't actually know much about a lot of the candidates. They might not have even heard of some of their names and they take their cue from newspapers like the Daily Telegraph. The majority of uh, Tory members read the Daily Telegraph as their newspaper and the Mail and and, and, uh, other such right wing publications, which are sort of repeating this line that he, he is the front runner. And so the sort of more you hear it, the more you think it, the more you feel that you should back a winner. And of course, MPs are starting to feel that they should Back a winner, perhaps for for different reasons, but they want to be, you know, someone who is in his favour when he, when or if he becomes prime minister. So I think there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of people being influenced by by just the received wisdom at the moment.
2: Yeah, and I think the thing that everyone seems to have forgotten is that in the 2015 Labour leadership election, Corbyn was nowhere among party members up until that first BBC hustings because that was when most Labour members had first properly seen him. Mm-hmm. You know, they knew that oh, there was this guy, oh, he's he's fairly radical, he's you know, been around for a long time. But their first sort of impression of him the moment when in the private polls that were commissioned for the leadership campaigns and of course we wrote about on the new statesman website the moment that he came into the lead was not the welfare bill or any of that stuff and the other campaigns have subsequently tried to blame other people for their own failures on it was after that first bbc debate that is i think really the one way i could see him not winning would be if Someone else Mm. on that BBC debate does sort of do something hugely impressive and kind of does, yeah, essentially is what Cameron did in 2005 and go, look, I'm your winner. I'm the one who can get us out of this mess. Obviously, the mess now is of a very different complexion, but.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think for the other candidates, it's all about getting airtime now. And the irony is that Boris Johnson has been turning down all media requests and interviews, but he's still getting the most airtime because everyone's sort of realised that he's most likely to win. So he doesn't really need to do that much press, whereas the others really need to get them, th- themselves out there.
2: Yeah, I think it does feel strange to me, the number of people doing these kind of like veiled sort of like, lol, lol it's a serious time, we need a serious leader or "Oh, are <laughs> yeah. you are going to pull out? And it's just like, guys no one is voting for him under the belief that they think he's a serious figure. Like, n- literally, no MP who is backing Boris has said, oh, do you know what I'm doing? I'm backing him because of, like, his, you know, his depth of thought about, you know, how to rework the British state, right? <laughs> yeah. They all say something like, it, it needs to be a Brexiteer and it needs to be someone who can win, right? That is literally exactly, the... Yeah. And yeah. I just find it bizarre how few of them have, even the ones who've said things which are going to make it hard for them to serve in a Boris government, still seem to think that the way to get to where members to not vote for Boris Johnson is to go, oh, lolol, lol, he's not serious, and not to attack what well, I guess will be the next thing we discuss in part two, which is whether or not he actually is still all that electable. <laughs> now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed. And the question that people are essentially asking us is, well, look, is Boris Johnson the most electable candidate? Yeah, obviously we've had two hypothetical polls about in which he would get, well, with YouGov, he'd get them up to 29% of the vote. With Comres, he would get them up to 36, I think, percent of the vote. Mm -hmm. Labour would be on around 22%, and the Lib Dems are around 20%. So, of course, under our electoral system, it does not matter how many votes you get, it's where you get them and where the other lot finish. So both of those would put him into majority territory, although it's hard to be exactly clear how big a majority. And he obviously covered... Let's actually not think about how many elections we've done. It's <laughs> going to make us all sad. Um, Feel sad and old. Yeah, you're someone who was in London during those those peaks of genuine popularity. Yeah, is he still the the person that he was then from a polit- electoral perspective?
0: I'd say something that really showed me, and, I, and this is anecdotal rather than you know uh, scientific, that showed me he is no longer the Boris Johnson of those heady. London mayoralty days, was when I went to the anti-Trump protest recently. Every single speaker, almost every single banner and placard, just everything that was happening at that at that protest, mentioned Boris Johnson in the same breath as Donald Trump. Obviously, we've spoken about it before in the podcast, not sort of tying Donald Trump too much with people who are pro-Brexit. Pro but his name came up with Nigel Farage. His name came up with Tommy Robinson's name in one of the speeches by someone who was, who was at the rally. And... I think that that means that Boris Johnson is associated with everything that people hate in London or seats that copy the sort of electoral preferences of London, so I think he's lost that constituency now. You know, I like to always think of where I grew up, which is the seat of Ealing Central and Acton. That's a real swing seat, and Boris Johnson was very popular there when he was London mayor, as far as I could tell and I really think that a seat like that now would never, ever show support for Boris Johnson in a million years. And, and that's, that's sort of a mar- t- Tory Labour marginal. So when you go to those kind of seats around the country, they're definitely not going to vote for Boris Johnson, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I think... Sorry, odd because I think the... The argument that a lot of his backers make in terms of his electability is flatly wrong, right? As you say, they went to go because he's the person who won London. It's just—I mm. mean, that—that that is quite literally like me saying to someone, "Hey, if you want a uh, like, great authentic Mexican food, go to Green and Red, just off Brick Lane." I mean, it's been an estate agent <laughs> for a decade now. Anyone who goes there for, for expecting good Mexican food is going to be looking at pictures of homes they can't buy. <laughs> um, but the. But the The flip side of that, of course, is if you you would still be able to eat something nice on Brick Lane, you just wouldn't be able to Mm. eat the nice authentic Mexican food that I had suggested you would be able to. And he obviously is not going to, his electoral coalition of support is radically different to what it was. Fundamentally, he might be the candidate for putting the Brexit party back in its box, Mm. but he obviously also puts the Liberal Democrats on steroids. (laughs) Now, I think essentially the question that kind of some of his more kind of thoughtful backers yeah, the argument they make, which I think is a lot more persuasive, is Brexit means the Conservative Party is going to have to become a party of Brexit, right? It can't get out of doing it because there was a referendum, because of where its voters are, because of where its MPs are. Hmm. That means that its electoral coalition is gonna to have to be even more Brexit-y than it is now. Which means essentially you have to try and now obviously there is a long term realignment of voting intention, essentially a you know, because of growing so you know about, you know, the young and the old and, and city dwellers which the problem, of course, is then if you end up in the kind of Theresa May trap where you don't win Kensington anymore, but you don't win Bishop Auckland. Mm. There is a persuasive argument to be made that Boris Johnson you know, if the if the thing that the Conservatives need to do is basically just go, Okay, well we're just gonna run as hard as we can at Bishop Auckland and hope we can win that and also hope that by the time we've won that, we haven't lost so many places like Putney, Hastings, etc., that the exercise has been rendered completely moot. Yeah, I usually don't like comparing people to US politics because the differences are so large. Mm -hmm. But the one way it is instructive, right, is Hillary Clinton is the Democrat who came closest to winning Texas in the last 20 years. She's also, of course, the first Democrat to lose Pennsylvania for the the last 20 years. That that electoral tactic might turn out to be, we might in 10 years' time go of course there's now this thing where republicans can win every other every other section but they just lose in the electoral college because democrats win texas now and you know that pennsylvania used to be a solid democratic state and is now a swing margin it may may be that we say that however of course in the here and now donald trump is president and it doesn't feel that the electoral strategy of trying to win texas and not winning pennsylvania is likely to obviously is a useful model if you're any other presidential system in the world or you have to get 50 percent of the vote plus one yeah, not particularly yeah. useful for the democrats and i kind of suspect that the, the tory idea that oh you can just fast track your evolution to be a party of brexit probably doesn't quite work
0: yeah i think it is actually at this time impossible to tell whether, whether that would work but I've been to a few of these seats where you know people characterize them as Labour heartlands where they're losing their they're rapidly losing their core vote because people voted for Brexit and feel that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't represent that quite strongly enough. I don't see at the moment a Boris Johnson led Conservative Party shifting Labour out of power in those seats or, 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 or dampening their vote enough to sort of mean that 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 strategy will win them lots of places that they've never won before because while people will praise Nigel Farage and the Brexit party or UKIP or whoever that third party may be that represents the sort of no deal hard Brexit th- side of things there's not enthusiasm for Boris Johnson in those seats yet.
2: Yeah I also think Yeah, my instinct is always that the problem for anyone saying oh we'll just become a party of remain oh we'll just become Mm -hmm. a party of lead is despite how hard people try and you know ignore lots of information and the amount of partisan reasoning putting into it there simply isn't an economically cogent coalition you can build only of remain voters or only of no there
0: isn't it's like whenever
2: someone does one of those kind of like yeah kind of like oh we need a party with you know rory stewart Mike Gapes, Jess Phillips, Keir Starmer, uh, Dominic Grieve in it. And it's just like, so that is three different opinions about trade union regulation, (laughs) four different opinions about foreign policy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's just one of those things where just like domestic policy, just because the government barely does it anymore, doesn't change the fact that it does still move a hell of a lot of votes. Yeah. And there is no domestic policy offer to leave voters voting Labour that does not end up either alienating quite a lot of existing Leave voters voting Conservative... Yeah, yeah. ...or indeed a lot of Remain voters who are still voting Conservative. And at that point, you're just like, oh, but you might as well try and appeal to all Labour voters instead of kind of having this kind of weird sectional thing. I think the other thing I'm dubious about, and I'm really interested to know what you think about this, is all of these polls suggesting that Boris Johnson would improve the Tory position are based on the idea that when push comes to shove, if Boris Johnson is Prime Minister on a harder Brexit platform... 20% 20% of people will still vote Lib Dem or indeed will still vote Live. I just kind of feel like I might be completely wrong, but I just don't quite see how in a situation in which there's a risk of a Boris Johnson premiership, a lot of those people won't vote for the party which they think has the best chance of stopping him which obviously in some places will be the Liberal Democrats but in a heck of a lot of places Will be Labour Yeah
0: Exactly It comes down to to those kind of Labour Tory marginals um, that we were discussing before and also Boris Johnson represents a hell of a lot more than just no deal Brexit or hard Brexit to voters. There's a there's a sort of cultural revulsion towards him because of the way that he's that he's um, sort of conducted himself since the referendum campaign. So it is to do with Brexit, but it's also to do with the fact that he is sort of this sort of right-wing, Tory, posh, bogeyman figure that people just don't want to see in government who are against that sort of cultural shift of things. And so even if you're not the biggest fan of Jeremy Corbyn, you'd probably vote Labour in a seat where you know that it would make the difference to to stop the Tories.
2: Yeah, because I think this thing is like, yeah, obviously, and I must admit, I still don't really understand... I can understand the following sentence: I am a Remainer and I am annoyed with Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit position. Yeah. I cannot understand the actual observed phenomena, which is I am a Remainer and I am annoyed by Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit program, and I wasn't annoyed in 2017. However, I accept that this—that is a, a huge number of people. The difference is, is because because it is bluntly difficult to work out exactly what the event then finally. Maybe it was the change launch. I think, the, the, I think that may have been part of it. Maybe it was the the, the physical fact of us being in the EU past the twenty ninth of March, which maybe meant a lot of people who thought that Brexit was was unstoppable have kind of thought maybe we can stop it. Maybe mm-hmm. I will vote Green or Lib Dem. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it's a combination of those things. But because it is a phenomenon that I find hard to explain, yeah, weirdly I feel I could I could understand Remain voters going yeah being willing to do this thing where they go oh, maybe labor does have a different policy to the one that is explicitly written in black and white and yeah. people say all the time aunty i could understand that i can understand being annoyed about that policy the weird thing is because i'm aware that i don't really fully understand and i don't think we'll ever have enough data to fully work out what triggered this period of change we are in this position where we're just going well maybe it'll change back yeah So there is another leadership election going on yeah. to elect the leader of the Liberal Democrats. This is the third leadership election since 2015. But it's, of course, the first one in which like, the central thing is not, are the Lib Dems doomed? Obviously, you, you interviewed... So I've just interviewed Ed Davey in this week's magazine. Last time you interviewed Norman Lamb. Yes, uh, yeah. I interviewed Tim Farron. So whether or not that means I have switched roles with you uh, <laughs> or if I will continue my hot streak, we we wait to find out.
0: And I interviewed Vince Cable when there was no contest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, Oh right.
2: So actually, yeah. yeah. So I guess you have already broken your streak there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of those things where it feels so hard to... It actually almost feels valueless to kind of... I, whenever I go on TV to talk about it, people go, oh, who's going to win? It's just like, well, it's really hard to tell because you have two quite strong candidates. You have a party where, okay, the reason why they're changing their leader is because the current leader wants to stand down, yeah. but they're not, they're not a party with an obvious problem, which makes it hard to work out what their members will be thinking when they sit down to vote.
0: Yeah, um, and I'd like to know from you, having interviewed Ed Davey, what, what you think the difference will make, actually, whether it's him or, or Joe Swinson. Will it make a difference to the Lib Dems considering they're going to hoover up those those remain votes in constituencies where they have the most chance of stopping the Conservatives getting in in a general election? So
2: context. I think from a from a direct electoral perspective I don't think it makes that much difference either way. In many ways right the, the Lib Dems I think are at the next election more of a function than a force right in that their political success comes from having a very strong, clear position on Brexit. And then, of course, their historical positions on other issues and are are going up you know, the list of, of relevance like climate change. But yeah. but that that position, kind of in an odd way, right, that position is either a magnetic attraction or it's not. Yeah. But they are going to hold that position. That position is set by their members, not by their, their leader. The slightly surreal thing, I think, about covering a Lib Dem leadership election, right, is that there are loads and loads of questions about policy for people who do not set policy.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but of course, it's very difficult to work out what type of questions you can ask when actually what you are kind of choosing, when you're choosing a Lib Dem leader, is a show pony. Because you kind of can't go like, well, how are you going to respond to five awkward questions? You yeah, know, like, pretend you're being doorstepped right now. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. I think from an electoral perspective, I think their strengths and weaknesses in the country probably cancel each other out. Yeah, okay. I think the interesting question is, Although obviously, you know, the Lib Dems are basically the only party where you can regularly get an applause line. Yeah, that actually the biggest applause line in Vince Cable's uh, European Manifesto launch was when he went, we're still open to vote, working with other parties, right? Yeah. But I think the, the, the big question I have, right, is, is although they're both, you know, they both do it on various campaigns, you know, they're both open to it. Jo Swinson has, you know, worked on the People's Vote campaign. Obviously, you know, being a Scottish MP, she worked on Better Together. There are more immediate kinship ties with other MPs. Mm. Now, of course, fascinating thing about the last half many months, and we will never be able to sort of disentangle the extent to which, you know, did the independent groups launch help trigger... People looking again at the Liberal Democrats? Was it just that we'd got to a certain point in politics where people were were willing to do that again? We don't know. But the interesting thing is that the political diagnosis that the independent group got wrong and then Change UK then was catastrophically exposed to was this idea that the Liberal Democrats could not do what they did in the locals. The other argument they had was that the Liberal Democrats were not an attractive vehicle for MPs to defect to because people have had. Yeah, had fought with them in local elections, fought with them in general elections, and that you needed another space for Tory MPs and Labour MPs who are unhappy with their leadership to go. Mm. And that argument is significantly less obviously debunked than the... I do find it ridiculous the number of actual adults whose political position is that they believe that the Conservative Party is going to take us off the cliff economically and that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite and the Labour Party is institutionally anti-Semitic, but their feelings about Ed Davies' opinion on Trident yeah. <laughs> or, like, whether or not Joe Swinson smiled too much in photos with the coalition... Yeah, with uh, 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 It's just one of those things where it's just like, well, guys, you clearly don't actually... You, which, which one of these three things are you lying about? Because yeah. if you sincerely believe the first two things, grow up about the last thing. <laughs> and a, a surprisingly large number of adults are willing to self-incriminate by going, God damn it, my opinions about the future of our economic model and the condition of an ethnic minority in this country aren't quite as important as my feelings about Nick Clegg. Yeah. And these, these people are adults. You can see this <laughs> on the record. It blows my mind. But yeah, just... there's no pure person to <laughs> yeah. vote for. Yeah. <laughs> I just think the question is, right, is if, if, if the Liberal Democrats can be a place that is a destination for people who've said, I don't think Boris Johnson is a fit and proper person to lead the party, or people who, who are disgusted by Labour's Brexit policy... Labour's inability to tackle anti-Semitism in its ranks. I think Joe Swinson is probably better optimised to do that. However, to be blunt, I kind of think that people won't ever actually leave the Conservative or the Labour Party anyway. So I think it's a theoretical advantage. But I mean, obviously, it may be okay, that yeah. we get yeah. out of this room and, you know, 15 people have finally left the Labour Party or six people have gone, oh, I guess all of those things I've said about Boris Johnson not being a fit and proper person should have some kind of meaning. Um, <laughs> but I just don't buy it.
0: Yeah, I remember when I when we were covering the previous contest, the one of the big questions was have people forgotten or like the young yeah. people that they want to appeal to, have they forgotten the co- the the coalition and how angry they were about the tuition fees, betrayal and, and and just in general working in government with with the conservative sort of austerity regime. And I think that question still hasn't actually been answered because obviously that's that's been masked by the pro-remain vote that the Lib Dems have hoovered up in the local elections. So someone like Joe Swinston, I think as you say, yes, she was part of the coalition, but she can point to a lot of things that she did in that government that were progressive. Yeah. And she also, as you say, has been part of the People's Vote campaign. And so, you know, going around universities or university towns, perhaps she'll have the slight edge on, on Ed Davey in, in terms of that particular section of the vote.
2: I think also this, it does come back to the, like, where do people think... What, what, basically, what do people think the most enduring places the Lib Dems can make gains of? Mm. Is it by being... Yeah, and I, I kind of think the coalition stuff is probably a bit overplayed in that, one, they were still able to make this gains with someone who was a national figure, right? Vincere was a national figure in the coalition yeah. in the way that, yes, Ed Davey was, was Secretary of State for for climate change, but you cannot claim that either he or Joe Swinson were national figures. If it is being a party of, yeah, in terms of the votes it's going to target next... I used to be a Tory, I want to stay in the EU, I don't like them. I can see bits of the public realm falling apart, I don't like Brexit, and I'm uneasy about the present Labour Party, then you can see how Ed Davey is probably better optimised. If it is the I don't like Labour's Brexit position, I think there's something really iffy about the way it's dealt with anti-Semitism. And of course the argument becomes a much stronger one for Joe Swinson. But yeah, I think I do sort of think in an odd way, the success of the Liberal Democrats is... So much to do with A, our electoral system, B, how people feel about Boris Johnson, C, what Brexit position Labour actually has going into the next election, then in an odd way, I kind of think neither of us, yeah, I think we can, yeah, let the, yeah, time is sufficiently passed, right? Neither of us thought that Tim Farron was the better choice for the Liberal Democrats in no. 2015. Uh, <laughs> this is the
0: Norman Lamb fan club yeah. podcast now. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, and, and I think in terms of the way that Tim Farron's personal views on homosexuality and abortion uh, destroyed their election campaign, so some of the doubts that we had about him were true. However, the thing that has clearly been the salvation of the Liberal Democrats from an electoral perspective in large chunks of the country, which was their avowed opposition to Brexit, would not have happened under anyone other than Tim Farron. So it is so difficult to work out what the conditions a party will... That's true. And
0: actually, to be fair to Tim Farron, there were lots of... Well, not lots, but a few Lib Dem MPs saying, you know, this manifesto is really unhelpful, particularly those in places like the South West where there were votes for Brexit that they had to to try and um, (laughs) somehow still win. I remember when I interviewed Vince Cable when he was about to become leader, he was saying, oh, you know, the manifesto didn't work, people didn't understand that a second referendum meant on the... Deal rather than just a rerun so I think you know sticking to that very unequivocal remain path wasn't necessarily the easiest decision yeah. um, but it's borne itself out
2: yeah and yeah. I think basically any other Liberal Democrat leader would not have done so which yeah. shows that essentially you shouldn't list so basically shows this is the podcast of people who are wrong about who should lead the Liberal Democrats wrong about who should lead the Labour Party wrong about who should lead the Conservative <laughs> Party next week we'll be discussing the SNP <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the New States and Podcasts with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by Emily Bootle, produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons and is Devil by the Devil.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do,